Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Have you ever thought why, as you live in this world, there are times when you are quite joyful, and other times you're down and you're just so overcome by everything in this world. Everything seems like a drudgery. Have you wondered why? Sometimes even the same thing, at, you know, there might be a certain thing or even a certain person or a certain relationship. Maybe it's your work or just something else that God has blessed you with. One time it seems to bring you great fulfillment and joy. Another time, the very same thing feels like such a burden to you. I mean, why is there that even as, not just for Christians, but often even for unbelievers, you know, when they look out into the world, they understand there is this paradox of seeing good things, but at the same time mixed with a lot of turmoil and difficulty and sadness So there are these two twin realities that are known to all of mankind and everyone understands that to some extent. And this morning we will understand why this is so from our passage. I just want to remind you, just uh, give you a big, uh, you know, the big picture in terms of what has happened so far from Genesis 1 onwards. God has revealed to us from the first couple of chapters that he is utterly sovereign and he is completely good. That when he created this world, he created a very good world that reflected his own goodness, that reflected his own glory. In fact, the very reason why he made everything was that it would reflect his glory. Then we come to chapter 2 and we see God's goodness in his care and his love for man, in providing everything for man. And, And so this we see of who God is, that he is sovereign, he is good, and and how it's and how he manifests his glory this way. Then when we come to chapter 3 we see a new character, which is Satan, who has possessed a serpent. He's one of God's angels who fell, who wanted to be uh, just like God, and in fact take the place of God, and therefore he fell from that high position, and he became utterly evil. And now there's nothing good about him. Nothing of the goodness of God indwells in him. And his sole purpose is to attack God, to go against the purposes of God, to try and overthrow all of God's plans, and to try and do away even with God's goodness. And so we see him in chapter 3 as he comes into this perfect world, into this perfect garden, taking possession of a serpent, and he comes to the woman. And he questions the very goodness of God and puts a doubt in her mind. And Eve, the the woman, she, she falls for it. And then ultimately, you see how her own sin comes from within and then it's fleshed out on the outside when she goes and eats of the forbidden fruit. And then she gives that same fruit to the man and he also disobeys God. And yet you still see the goodness of God in that he comes after the man and the woman in trying to pursue them and in trying to get them to see their own sinfulness and to get them to confess. And he asks them questions. But even there, mostly you see the man and the woman just making excuses. And it further confirms what has just happened, that they have sinned and now they are spiritually dead. And so now God comes and deals with the sin issue in itself. 
And last week we saw how he first went to the serpent and how he cursed the serpent and then also Satan, who was the supernatural power behind that serpent, that he would be condemned, that he would be ultimately defeated. But even in that, we saw that there was the promise of this offspring of the woman, and it was such a grace to the man and the woman and the rest of mankind. And this morning, we will see the consequence of the man and the woman. And specifically, as we look at this text, we're going to see and understand why God gives consequences for sin, for any sin for that matter. And we're going to also see how there is much grace even in the consequences that God gives for our sin. So let's look at, firstly, the consequence of the woman's sin in verse 16. To the woman, he said. Now, one of the first things that you should notice here is that God does not curse the woman. In fact, he also doesn't curse the man. But the serpent was cursed. And as we will see a little bit later, God also curses the ground because of the man's sin. But the man and the woman were not personally cursed. And you say, why is that important? Or is that important? I would say this is absolutely important. And here's why. While God cursed the serpent and Satan because of his sin and his rebellion, in that now God is opposed to Satan. His favor is removed from Satan. And ultimately, Satan would be defeated and destroyed. Toward the man and the woman, God simply judges them for their sin. He gives them the consequence for their sin. And, and even this, oh, you say, but, but even that, isn't, isn't that a little bit harsh? I mean, especially because of all that we see around us. And I would say this. See, yes, God is good. God is sovereign. And he desires to display his glory. But we must also understand that in his goodness, God is also just and righteous. And therefore, he must judge sin. He must punish sin. Otherwise, he would not be a good God. Any more than a human judge would not be a good judge if he did not judge and punish the person who has stolen from somewhere or has murdered someone. And so God too, for him to be good, he has to judge sin and uphold his justice precisely because he is good. But the difference in the way he deals with the rebellion of Satan and the rebellion of mankind are very different. Satan is cursed and there is no way in which he can be redeemed. But for the man and the woman, he does not curse them. He simply judges them and gives them the due consequence for their sin. And we will see toward the end of it how this is also an act of mercy and grace. So verse 16 again. To the man... To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule 
over you. See, the woman was given a particular role as the woman. She was to be fruitful and multiply with the man, and then she was to help the man in exercising dominion over all the earth. And by living this way, in this, in this role, in this created order, the woman would reflect the goodness of God and the glory of God. But what we saw is that the woman, she wasn't happy with the role that God had given to the woman. She wasn't satisfied. She wanted something more. And therefore she desired and delighted in that which God had prohibited. And so God says, this is your consequence, woman, for your sin. For coming out from under the protection of your husband and taking things into your own hand and rebelling and sinning against me and desiring that which I had forbidden, that forbidden fruit, by eating that forbidden fruit. This is your consequence. And it's going to affect two areas in your life that had to do with your role. It's going to affect you in the area of conception and motherhood, and it's going to affect you in the area of marriage. God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now the word for pain here, which is the same word that will be used for the man, it's a word that can mean physical pain or hardship or toil, but it can also mean emotional pain, like sorrow and, and distress and anxiety and worry. So it can mean pain in the sense of physical discomfort or mental discomfort. And also the word that's translated here as childbearing, more literally the, the word is actually conception or, or the word there is for the word for pregnancy or conception. And, and really the word is used there, that word conception is used there to represent the entire process of having children. From conception to giving birth and, and even to the rearing of children once the child is born. And so the consequence of the woman's sin is this. You're going to have pain and troubles and difficulties from conception to childbirth and even beyond that. There could be difficulties in just conceiving and falling pregnant. There could be difficulties during pregnancy from morning sickness to severe tiredness to dangerous complications both for the mother and the child. There could be difficulties even during the childbirth from severe labor pains to other difficulties where sometimes because of complications even the mother or, or the baby can even die. And even after the baby is born, difficulties in the first few months of life, whether it's postpartum blues to sleeplessness to feeding difficulties to, uh, and even things like infections. And as the baby starts growing up, the heartaches, the, the difficulties associated with raising up a child, a sinful human being trying to raise up another little sinful human being, Oh, there's going to be a lot of toil and, and difficulty and heartache and tiredness and whatnot associated with bringing up that child. So if you're a woman and if you've asked the question, why is it so difficult for me to get pregnant? Or for those of you who have been pregnant, why is my pregnancy so difficult? Or why is my labor so difficult? 
or for those of you who have become mothers, why is it so difficult to be a mother, the tiredness and the heartache that's involved in it? The answer to all of these questions is this, that it is part of the consequence of the sin of the woman. One theologian writes, The aspects of Eve's life that were intended to bring the greatest pleasure in her life will now be invaded by pain. This is not merely the physical pain of labor and delivery, but pain of infertility and miscarriage, birth defects and learning disabilities. This is the pain of birthing a child into a broken world and mothering a child in the midst of this broken world. Her children will be born but will not live forever. They will be born into the reality of sin and death. Close quote. So the pain and and trouble involved in conception all the way to raising a child serves as a constant reminder to all of sin and its consequences and the part that the woman played in it. Now in the case of the first woman, she did have children. But there was much pain. I mean, think about it. Her firstborn son murdered her second son. Then her firstborn son rejected God and his ways and walked away from God. Think about how much heartache she would have had from knowing that it was all part of the consequence of her sin. But here's the grace of God toward the man, uh, toward the woman, pardon me, and the rest of mankind, even in this. That it is precisely through her offspring that there would one day be one who would crush and defeat Satan and would make everything right. That's the grace of God that is still being shown to the woman despite her rebellion against God. See, God could have just cursed the man and the woman like the serpent. And he would be completely just in doing that. To be opposed to them for their rebellion and give them no opportunity to be saved. God didn't have to show his grace and his mercy. And I think this is where we really have to see how gracious God has been. That despite the consequences of her rebellion and sin against God, God still shows grace and promises her that her offspring will defeat Satan and will make things right. You know, I just want to take a moment and, and for you to understand, especially if you are a believer, to understand the grace of God that is shown to you. Just think about this for a moment. Satan rebelled against God, and God curses him, and there is no way he is going to be redeemed. Now you tell me, why is it that God has shown grace and mercy to you and to me if you're a believer? Why? Because really, essentially from a sin and rebellion point of view, you stood exactly at the same place as Satan. I stood at the same level as Satan with regard to my sin before God. There was nothing about me. There was nothing about you. Nothing that you did. Nothing that I did. It was purely the grace of God. Do you see how valuable the God's grace is? That really, I didn't merit it and you didn't merit it. It was purely God's grace and because he decided to do so and he wanted to display his glory this way by showing grace to you and to me. 
And we should never forget that. Now the consequence of the woman's sin is not just seen in the area of conception and motherhood, but it also affects the marriage relationship. Look at the second part of verse 16. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, when you look at this line at first, and even as you look at different translations, it seems at first glance like a good thing. I mean, for the wife to have her desire for her husband, that's a good thing. And for the husband to be the head of the home, protecting and providing for his wife, and ruling over, this, over her this way, that, that's a good thing too. Because God established that. In fact, some people will look at this verse and say, look, for the man to be the head of the home and, and rule the home, that was part of the curse. And they say, oh, you know, men and women are equal before God and, and therefore there needs to be no headship of the man. They would say, headship of the man, that's a wrong idea. That's a, as a result of the fall. That's a, as a result of God's judgment. But I want to emphasize and remind you, God is the one who set the man, the husband, as the head of the family, as head over the woman, or over the wife, and for the woman to be the helper to the man. And this is something that was established before the fall, before there was sin and judgment. Nonetheless, when we see this second part of what God is saying, you know, within the context of the woman's sin, we understand that this statement, even though at first glance it might seem like a good thing, the statement is being, is, is being used in a negative sense. But I do believe there is a sense of intentional ambiguity there. See, here's what I believe it's saying. For the wife, she may have a good desire for her husband. But it might come out in the way of controlling her husband, perhaps because the husband is being passive. Even though her desire is good, it comes out now as a way of controlling him now. Other times, for selfish reasons, the, the wife might want to control the husband because she just wants to have her own way. And then so she might resort to things like manipulation or something else. And then similarly for the husband, he may have a good desire to, to encourage his wife. But then it might come out in a more domineering way to get her to change. Other times, the husband too, just for selfish reasons, not for good desires, not for good reasons, he might become a tyrant. And even, may even abuse his wife simply to get what he wants from his wife. So it could be a combination of all of those things between the husband and the wife. Ultimately, what it's saying is that there's going to be conflict in the marriage relationship. There's going to be pain. There's going to be burden in this relationship. That there's going to be a battle for who's going to be in charge. You see, there was meant to be a oneness, a harmony, unlike any other human relationship in the marriage relationship. And we saw that in Genesis 2. Now, because of sin, there will be strife and discord and constant struggle to carry out their respective roles as wife and husband. One commentator says this, quote, 
she, that is referring to the woman, the woman was made to be her husband's companion and helper. But now she will fight against the desire to dictate to him and dominate him. Rather than look to her husband for guidance, she'll seek to manipulate him. And rather than gently guiding and guarding her, he, that is the husband, will lord over her and exploit her. Rather than the unfettered, one flesh intimacy they once knew, their relationship will be riddled with self-centered strife. End quote. So when you think of the conflict and difficulties and the heartaches in, in marriage, including those ultimately leading to divorce, where did it all start from? From Genesis 3.16. The conflict in marriage is to be a constant reminder again of sin and its consequences. You know, now the world would look at the troubles within the marriage and say, look, the problem is with the institution of marriage. Yeah, it's because, you know, they've, they've committed together and they've done this and they're living together, all that kind of stuff. That's why there's all this trouble. And the world would say, so therefore, let's just do away with marriage. In fact, the world would look at the troubles associated with conception and pregnancy and childbirth and even raising a child. And so sometimes in the world, some would say, some would decide to not even have children altogether for selfish reasons. Why? Because they don't have to deal with the added burdens and the toils and the pains that comes from raising a child. Still, there'll be others who find out they're pregnant and they will kill babies by aborting them. Why? Because babies are going to be an inconvenience for their life. Still others will abuse children or neglect their children rather than put in the hard work and the toil and the burden of raising up children. But here's the thing. Marriage, conception, having children, raising children, they're all good things. They're all God-ordained things. And they're things that can bring great joy, and particularly to the woman. But because of sin and its consequences, not because marriage is inherently bad, not because having children is inherently bad, but because of sin and its consequences, there is pain and difficulty and troubles in these areas. So those things that are blessed things that are meant to bring great joy are now also things that will cause much pain and trouble and heartache. Now let me just say this. God is not saying having children is hard. Therefore, don't have children or neglect your children. God is not saying marriage is hard and if you're married in the marriage relationship, the wife will seek to dominate and the husband then will try to domineer as well. So just live like that and enjoy life. No, God is not saying that. He's saying these things which are blessed things, things that God himself has given, they become tainted because of sin and they bear the consequences of sin. And it is precisely because of this sinful tendency for those of us who are believers and who are on this side of the cross, knowing that the seed of the woman has come and we're sitting on this side and have trusted in Jesus. God now says to the husbands, and repeatedly in the New Testament you see, that the husbands now, precisely because of this sin, sinful tendency, husbands lovingly lead your wife. Do not domineer. Wives 
live in joyful submission to your husbands. This is what God has designed, and you will have a tendency to want to usurp that, but this is for your own good. And even for children, that the parents are to lovingly admonish the children and instruct the children in the ways of the Lord, but not discourage them, not exacerbate them, because of the tendency of, uh, that sin brings about to wreck the whole thing. But the reality is that there is still going to be the consequence of sin. And we've just looked at the consequence of the woman's sin, and it'll affect areas of conception and motherhood and the marriage relationship, and even the man and woman relationships. God now turns to the man. And he says, man, here's the consequence for your sin. And here we come to our second point in verses 17 through to 19. Let me just read the first part of verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now let me just say this at the start. When God says to the man, Because you have listened to your wife, The implication, therefore, is not, we should not take this as God saying or husbands thinking. Therefore, husbands, you should never listen to your wives. No, not at all. That would be taking this out of context. God has given each husband his wife as a companion, as a compliment to him, and to help him in areas he's weak in, and they are to live this way as one unit. This is God's design. So he is to seek the help of the woman. And there will be many times when it would be right and good for the husband to listen to what his wife has to say. Because a husband can be blind to things. He can be weak in certain areas. And so the husband will do well to listen to his wife during those times. Then you say, then what is God saying? Well, this is what God is saying. God is making clear to Adam about his primary responsibility and that he failed and he disobeyed God. You see, God had made the man the leader of the home and even the, the, the ruler of all of creation. He was supposed to care for his family and wife, and he was to care for all of creation and, and, and just really continue to care for creation and in this way reflect the goodness of God in his role. And he was given that responsibility to make sure that even as a couple they would live under the goodness of God, under his rule and under his word. But you see, the man was passive in his role. He didn't take his role in the way that God had given to him seriously. He was passive. He did not protect his wife. He did not continue to exercise dominion. He didn't throw the snake out of the garden when he started blaspheming against God. He allowed his wife to go astray and sin. And then he deliberately, knowingly, without being deceived, disobeyed God by following the instruction of his wife rather than God's. It seems like even he wasn't fully satisfied 
with the role that God had given him. And so he decided to rebel against God and disobey God. So that's the issue. It's not in any way saying that it is wrong for a husband to listen to his wife. But it's the fact that Adam failed in his role to lead his wife and protect his wife and to exercise dominion over all of creation and even over the serpent. And that he deliberately went against God's word and then listened to his wife and rebelled against God. That's the issue. So God is essentially saying to Adam, Adam, I asked you a question before and you were blame shifting, making all kinds of excuses for your actions. Let me make this clear to you, Adam, because you have no excuse for your sin because you bore the primary responsibility in this. You were given the primary responsibility for all of creation and for your family to live under my goodness and under my rule. You failed to exercise your rule over the serpent. You failed to lead your family and you deliberately rebelled against me. So here's your consequence. Now remember, because Adam had the greater responsibility for his family and even over all of creation, the consequence of his sin is going to be much greater. In fact, it's going to have a global impact. Let me just say this even as we even before we look at the consequence of Adam's sin. Sin always has consequences. But it not only impacts the individual who sins, it impacts many others as well. The co- the consequence of Eve's sin impacted not just her It impacted Adam as well as the children that they will have and every marriage relationship and the whole aspect of having children for everyone after that. The consequences of Adam's sin, it impacts not just Adam, it will impact Eve and the rest of creation really. It will have a global impact Because Adam bore the primary responsibility. Now it's less likely that, you know, our sin would impact the rest of the world. You know, Adam and Eve, they were in a unique position. They were the first humans, so it has a greater impact. Still, we will do well to remember that when we sin, our sin impacts not just us, it impacts those around us. So God says to Adam, here's the consequence for your sin. Cursed is the ground because of you. Again, notice here, it is not Adam that's being cursed. It is the ground that is being cursed. Oh, what a grace of God in this. The ground is cursed. The earth that was the ground that was perfectly fertile and had that perpetual water supply, remember we learned all that in Genesis 2, and there was no uh, need for rain. Now all that would be disrupted. There would now be earthquakes. There would be storms, tornadoes, tsunamis, volcanic eruptions, floods, droughts, famines, and every kind of natural calamity that you can think of. In fact, it is because of Adam's sin that insurance policies exist. God go- goes on to say, 
Look at the last part of verse 17 and then 18 and 19. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Just like the woman, at the center of the man's life, God says, as a result of the consequence, as consequence for your sin, there is going to be pain. It's the exact same word that was used for the woman. I know some of the translations uh, have it as even toil. And that's because, as I said before, this word here can mean both physical pain, as in toil or hardship or difficulty, uh, and it can also mean emotional pain and distress and, and, and weariness. See, before the fall, he could eat freely, anytime, as many times he could eat from all of the trees in the garden, except for that one tree. There was an abundance of food freely available. Before the fall, as Genesis 2.5 2, says, that there were no thorny bushes of the field. And crops didn't need to be cultivated. But now, because of Adam's sin, things have become different. Adam has to work for his food. Yes, Adam did work before the fall, but he didn't have to work for food. Because food was readily available, it was freely available. His work was more so to take care of the garden and to look after it and to guard it and in a similar sense exercise dominion over all of creation, just kind of be the caretaker. But, it was, but work came easy and it was very productive and a fully enjoyable work as he honored God this way. But now Adam has to cultivate the ground to, to make the soil ideal for the crops to grow. He then has to plant the seeds. He has to water it. There's no, no more that perpetual under, underwater supply of water, uh, underground water supply. He has to water it himself. He has to grow the crops and then harvest it for food. Food would no longer be easily available. And on top of that, there's thorns and thistles and weeds that would now freely grow out from the ground. That, do, that doesn't need any cultivation. It would just freely grow. But actual crops from which you harvest and get food, they need to be cultivated. And these thorns and thistles and weeds, they would try to choke the good crops of its water and light and nutrition. So Adam has to now constantly weed out these things. And even with all of this toil, with all of this backbreaking effort that he would put into his work, what he would get at the end of it many times would not be equal to the effort that he would put into the work. Maybe it was a flood. Maybe it was a famine. Maybe it was weeds killing the plants, so on and so forth. So there would be many obstacles in his way of work. See, the abundance that was guaranteed before is now replaced with the possibility of scarcity and famine and poverty. The pure joy that came from work is now mixed with drudgery and weariness and futility. And really, this is the state of every man when you think about work. Work is hard, and it's burdensome. And there are often many obstacles to overcome while doing work. And while there's certainly some joy that we get when we work and we accomplish a task, it can also become wearisome and, and even burdensome 
and, and become the cause of anguish and distress, especially when we put a lot of effort in, but, but the fruit that come out of that work is minimal, it, it can become just very wearisome. Ecclesiastes 2, 10 and 11 confirms this when it says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Yes, work does bring uh, an amount of joy, but it's no longer that full joy, because our efforts will not last, and we'll have to keep working. And so it, it becomes a striving after, after the wind, almost like, uh, you, you know, you're, you're on this, this wheel that just keeps going on like this. Now the world will see the, the difficulty and the toil and the futility of work. And some will say as a result, oh, see, work is difficult and, you know, all this hard work and sometimes you don't even get all the fruit from all the effort that you put in. So what am I going to do? Some people of the world will say, I'm not going to work. No, I'm, I'm happy to make excuses and somehow just live on the government welfare, excusing their laziness. And they think work is a curse. But let me remind you again, work in itself is not a curse. It was a blessing given by God to man before the fall. Now, the only difference is after the fall, work has become exhausting and futile. The issue is not with work per se, it is sin. The difficulty of life and work in this fallen world is a reminder of the dreadfulness of sin and its consequences and that God will judge sin. But even here, you, you know, there's a layer of grace uh, that God shows. See, God could have told the man, man, because of your sin, because you've blatantly, not being deceived, but knowing full well you rebelled against me, you're not going to be able to work. God could have said that. God could have said there will be no more food and you're just going to starve and die. And this is going to be your plight and this is going to be the plight of the entire human race. God could have done that and he will still be just because he would only be giving what man deserved for his rebellion. But God still allows the man the gift of work, even though it will be hard. And he's still able to work and earn a living and get food and provide for his family despite his sin and rebellion. So God's grace is also seen here. Still, it doesn't take away from the, that weariness and the toil in work and human existence. And this will be the portion all the days of man's life. One commentator writes, quote, speaking about the man's circumstances or consequences, such, uh, he says, quote, Such circumstances shall be with the man for his whole life. He will never be free of fatigue and toil. There is no evidence in the text that any repentance by man can lift or remove these circumstances. They will be part and parcel of his life until he returns to the ground.
Now God concludes what he has to say about the man's consequence for his sin by saying, verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What is this talking about? Death. See, the only respite that man will get from the exhaustion and the toil of this life is in death. And remember, remember that the human body, it was made from the dust of the earth. We saw how man was made, right, in Genesis 2. The human body was made from the dust of the earth. And yet, what is that? It is the same material that was cursed. Because the ground is cursed, now everything that is related to the ground must die. So that's human bodies, animals. Really, all of creation is now subject to decay and death. And that's what we read, right, in our Bible reading this morning from Romans 8, about creation being subject to corruption. Why? Because of man's sin. God cursed the ground. Now, everything that contains the ground, that, that has in its constituent self elements of the ground, they are going to die as well, which is essentially all of creation. And this also fulfills what God had previously said, right? Where God said, if you eat of that fruit that I have told you not to eat of, you will die. See, the man and the woman, we saw they're already spiritually dead as soon as they ate from the forbidden fruit. And they're in this state of death. And now their physical bodies will catch up to that state of death now that the ground is also cursed. But here's the, the, the great hope in the midst of all this. Genesis 3.15, what we looked at last week. And just as God promised the that the offspring of the woman who is none other than Jesus Christ, he came and he bore the curse of sin on himself for all the rebellion and the sin of the world. Jesus himself took the curse on himself and bore the wrath of God when God said, I am going to be opposed to you and felt the brunt of that. And then he died and rose up on the third day, defeating sin and death and Satan. And so now for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, we have a glorious hope that this same Jesus, this same offspring of the woman will come once again. And we will have new bodies Yes, these bodies will go to the ground. They are part of the ground that is cursed. But we will have new bodies that are not touched by sin or the curse. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be no more sin or toil or suffering or disease or pain. And Satan and all of his offspring will be totally defeated. And we will all live in perfect harmony and in perfect communion with this great and good God once again, fully satisfied in his presence and his order and his rule and everything about what he has done and is in his being. That's the hope that we have as Christians even as we hear the consequences of the sin of the man and the woman and as it's seen outplayed out even now 
in our time. But as we come to a close, as much as we've seen glimpses of God's grace and these consequences given to the man and the woman, I want to show you two ways in which God's grace really is manifested. And I pray that it would really help you to think about life and how you live your everyday life, in fact, as from the principles that, that are seen in this text. Two ways in which God's grace is, uh, you know, in a very big way seen. The first one is this. God's grace is seen in the consequences. God's grace is seen in the consequences. Think about it this way. Parents, they give consequences to their children for their sin. And the consequence brings pain to the child. But the pain from the consequence for the child's sin is meant to deter that child from that sin. So that the next time the child thinks of disobeying and sinning, they associate that sin with the pain and the consequence that they received. And so that's going to keep them from sinning. So it's a grace to give children consequence for their sin. It's for their own good. Now similarly, the pain and the difficulties of having children, the pain and difficulties in marriage and in work and in life in general, they are reminders of the seriousness of sin and the ruin caused by sin. And as a resu result, the, the, these reminders, these painful reminders of sin should cause us to further turn away from sin. I mean, I, I just really want you to understand the grace of God in this, in, in how he sh you know, gives consequences for our sin. I mean, on the one side, God gives us the, con uh, the conscience, right? He makes us aware of guilt and shame and condemnation when we sin. He didn't have to do that. But that in itself is a grace. And we saw how that was operating with Adam and Eve when they were hiding from God. But beyond that, in addition to that, in addition to the operating of the conscience, God gives consequences for our sin which act as strong reminders of sin and its devastation, which in turn acts as a deterrent to keep us from continuing in the path of sin. And so God's grace is seen even in the fact that he does give us consequences for our sin so that we would not go in that direction. Oh, what a grace of God. But it's not just that. God's grace is also seen in the frustration of his gifts. God's grace is seen in the frustration of his gifts. You see, before the fall, things like marriage, having children, work and everything else that come as blessings from God, that come as gifts from God, they brought the man and the woman pure joy as the man and woman were in this unbroken fellowship with God. And man saw very clearly that these were gifts from God. And therefore he enjoyed them fully as, as gifts from from God himself. And it was a way by which they could glorify God and even enjoy God by saying, God, you've given it to me. I'm giving you glory by enjoying these things. But now, because of sin, there's a broken fellowship with God. It's not a constant communion. It's not a constant fellowship with God. So even God's gift 
good gifts like marriage and having children and work and every other blessing that comes from him that does bring joy, but it is also frustrated with difficulty and pain and heartache and weariness. See, but this too is a grace in a sin-cursed world. Because when we realize that none of these good gifts, as much as they are blessings from God, they're never going to satisfy me. I'm never going to find full satisfaction in my work. I'm not, never going to find full satisfaction in my marriage. I'm never going to find full satisfaction in my children, or whether I have children or I do not have children. I'm never going to have full satisfaction in this thing or that thing. As much as these are blessings from God, God has frustrated it because now sin has come into the picture. Because we will have a tendency now to elevate that over Him. And this frustration, what it does is it becomes a reminder that nothing else in this world will satisfy us. And what is it going to do to God's children? It's going to drive us to God when we are frustrated by these things, when these things become wearisome, while we experience some joy, it causes us to run to God and say, and then we begin to realize, God, you are my only satisfaction. None of these things in this world will satisfy. So you see how this is also God's good grace so that we would keep from being blind to our own sin that we would not be blinded to a good and perfect giver and it would just cause us to continue to run to him because that is what is good for us. Only he can truly satisfy us. Oh, what a gracious God we have, don't we? And may we be thankful as we think of these things, as we think of the consequences of sin, whether it's our own specific sins and we are bearing the consequences of it, or whether it's the consequence of the original sin and the the toil and the wearisomeness that we experience. May it remind us of sin and all the frustration it causes, but may it cause us to run to our God and thank Him and be satisfied in Him. And as we go to Him, that will only be for our good. And let us continue to wait, wait, wait for that wonderful day when our Savior comes and we will perfectly commune with Him and we will perfectly be satisfied in Him and we will perfectly enjoy everything that he has given in a full sense, with full joy. And as we do that, we will say, thank you, Lord, for all that you are and all that you've given. But even as we continue to live in this world, let us have that mindset and thank God for even the consequence of sin. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good God you are. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us this way. And yet, Father, we confess again that when we sin, when our conscience operates and we feel the guilt of it, we sense condemnation, or when we experience the the, the consequence of sin or somebody else's sin or even the original sin. We forget about your goodness. And yet, Father, the very reason why you have placed even these things is to deter us from our sin and to look away from ourselves and anything in this world and to cause us to look to you. What can we say, Father, other than thank you? What can we say, Lord Jesus, for bearing the curse that was meant to fall on us? That you took our curse. What can we say to you other than thank you? Holy Spirit, we thank you for the way that you continue to work in our lives, illuminating 
for your word to us. And we thank you for this. And help us as your children, as children who are loved and been shown grace and have experienced the goodness of the triune God. Help us to live a life of joy and thankfulness always toward you, even in this sin-cursed world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.